going to leave the book of Galatians this Sunday. We'll come back maybe next Sunday. I don't know. But I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah chapter 7. We want to look at this morning and talk about verses 18 and 19. I've entitled this message, The God Who Pardoned. And that's why I read Acts chapter 17 for you. you know, it's, it's, it's the preacher's responsibility to declare as plainly and as dogmatically and as uncompromisingly as he can this unknown God that men and women cannot figure out on their own. And that's what I want to do this morning. And I sat there this week determining what I wanted to preach on. I got to looking at this thing. and look, Let's read verse 18 and 19 together, and then I want to come back and make a couple of more remarks before we begin to look at these passages. Micah writes, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and bless us this morning as we seek to preach his gospel. I keyed in on one word as I looked at this particular passage, and it's this word, pardoneth. And I got to looking at it, and I got to comparing it with the New Testament, and, and I found something. I found something I think that actually relates to what our Lord Jesus Christ, or what the Lord tells us by the mouth of his prophet uh, Micah. You know, three of the four Gospels, and you know, this might be a good study for you to take on, is to look at the Gospels as they parallel one another, and you see the different stories and different miracles and different events of our Lord's life recorded by each different aspect of the different gospel authors. But three of the four gospels record this miracle where our Lord Jesus Christ healed a man that was stricken with palsy, which is a form of paralysis. And in this event, it's recorded in three of the four Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ was teaching, speaking in a home. And this man who had paralysis, thank God for friends, his friends brought him. And I, I would be upset if it was on my house. They climbed up on the roof of the house and broke the house roof up. And they let this man down among these people that our Lord Jesus Christ was teaching to. And needless to say, our Lord Jesus Christ healed him, healed this man. But here's the thing that's recorded in all three of the places, these three gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where it's recorded. After our Lord had healed this man, was stricken, our Lord looked to him, and in all three of them it records the same thing. He says to this man who had been stricken with palsy, who was now healed of palsy, he said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, when he made that statement, and this is recorded in all three of the Gospels, these self-righteous scribes began to reason with, it says they reasoned within themselves. They weren't speaking out loud. 
And they said this, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Who can forgive sins but God only? And I got to thinking about that word translated forgive in this passage. Though it's in the Greek, it's basically the same meaning that the word that's in the Hebrew in our text this morning translated pardon it. You look it up for yourself. I'm telling you, don't, don't trust me. Look it up for yourself. In both instances, it means to take away or to carry off or to sweep away. And you know what? I got the thing about it. These scribes were right in their reasoning. They were right. None can take away sin. None can carry away sin. And I tell you, nobody can sweep it away. But who? But God himself. Listen, this is the thing. Salvation ain't got nothing to do with you or me. It's got nothing to do with our faith. It's got nothing to do with our repentance. Listen, it's not even got anything to do with our perseverance. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto them. I've said this so many times when we preached on that passage that I just quoted to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we've talked about it and discussed it in the past as we went through other... Somebody, somewhere, has not got sin imputed to them. And I tell you what, those that have not had sin and do not, will not... Isn't that what David said? Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not charge, impute sin. Huh? Not going to charge it. Somebody's not. Well, does God just forget about it? Does he just pretend like we didn't sin? Does he act like somehow or another we become something that we weren't before? Is this pretense on our God's part? Not at all. What did God do? He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So this thing of salvation is about God resting in his own love. And herein's love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to propitiation for our sins. Now look at this passage this morning. This passage that we want to begin looking at this morning. The prophet Micah begins by asking a searching question. Who is like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his people? Think about this first phrase. Who a God? Because if you notice it says who is is in italics. He says who a God like to thee? Where can you find a God like this? The answer is what? There are none. There are none. Think about the way King David described our God. For who is God save the Lord? Jehovah. That's what that L, remember what I told you, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's always Jehovah. Or who is a rock? A cliff. Save our God. That's Psalm 18, verse 31. In Psalm 115, verse 3 and 5, King David said this, But our God, and this is the key, our God is in the heavens. 
He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Whatever pleases God, that's what he does. He don't consult us. But he went on. Who is likened to our God? Who dwells where? Dwells on high. We have to be very clear on this point. Other than Jehovah, the true and living God, there are no other gods. Every other God, what is it? It's nothing more than an idol. There are none as great. There is none as mighty. And there are none like our God in the perfections of his character. And when the prophet asked this searching question, who's like our God, you know what he's doing? He was showing us that the true and living God can and must be distinguished from all those idols based on one specific truth. What distinguishes and separates our God from every other false God? Here it is. That pardons iniquity. And that passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Now listen to it. There, there's no question the fact that, that all men and women by nature are of the opinion that their God's ready to pardon. Everybody says what? Come to Jesus, accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, and what will he do? He will forgive you of your sins. What is that? That's conditional salvation. That's if you'll do this, God will do that. And see, we know this also to be true. We know this is true because of what the, the various sacrifices and the various offerings they make in order to make amends and atone for their failures. But here's the thing. These kinds of sacrifices and offerings that are offered by these individuals who are delusional reveal that the ones who make them, what are they doing? They're idol worshipers. Worshiping a God of their own imagination, a God who's not the true and living God. Micah didn't say that God merely offers to pardon iniquity. If we'll fulfill whatever conditions are required. He tells us plainly, our God, he alone, pardoneth iniquity. Like I told you at the beginning, that word pardon means to lift, to bear up, to carry off, or to take away. And the thing, I didn't put it in my notes. You know, when I thought about, when I think about our sins being taken away, what always pops into your mind when you think about sins being taken away? I always think about the, 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 the scapegoat. You know, there were two. One was sacrifice. The other, the priest laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat, prayed the sins and the iniquities and the transgressions of all the people of Israel onto that scapegoat, and they took and put a new rope around the neck of that goat and put it in the hand of a fit man. And that fit man carried that goat out into the desert. And he released him. There's only one fit man that can take away our sin. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've told you this in the past. And I'll continue to say it. Not one scapegoat ever wandered back into Israel. Because I tell you what. If one wandered back. Christ didn't put away our sin. God dealt with that scapegoat. So the one true God distinguishes himself from every other idol by lifting up or bearing up or carrying off or taking away the iniquities of his people, the objects of his love. And here's what I find interesting. That word translated iniquities, you know what it means? It means perversity. Think about that. Depravity. 
These are all definitions of it. Iniquity, guilt, or punishment of iniquity. Here's the same word, exact word for pardoneth used in setting forth the person and work of the God-sent Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely he hath borne. Same word translated pardoneth. Our grace and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he doesn't stop. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And thank God for this, with his stripes, we are. Not we're in the process of being healed. We are healed. You know what we see here? We see here that Christ alone bore the entire burden of our iniquities as our substitute and our surety. But the Lord didn't stop there. He moved this prophet Micah by his Holy Spirit to declare something else that distinguishes the true and living God from all these old false gods. That passeth by, you hear that? That passeth by the the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. I'd encourage you. I I was going to, well, I will read it to you. It's only two verses. Isaiah, they, they all understood the same thing. Isaiah said this, Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you that are escaped to the nations that have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. That's all men and women by nature. They're going to worship something. They worship a God of their own creation, of their own invention. He says, tell you and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? Listen to his language here. There is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. How many gods are there? There's only one. How do we know the one true God? He is a just God who will by no means clear the guilty. And at the same time, what is he? He's a Savior. Look unto me. Who do you look to? Not to the the graven image, the gods of your imagination. Where do we look? We look unto him, a just God and a Savior. And when we look to him as a just God and a Savior, taught of God how God can be just to justify the ungodly. Be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there's none else. This phrase, passeth by in our text, means that the true and living God overlooks the rebellion of his children. That doesn't mean that the sins of God's children escape his view. The scriptures are very clear. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good, and the evil, and we know that all too well as his children, do we not? Even though the Lord sees and knows our transgression, which means that word transgressions means rebellions, what he doesn't do is this he doesn't call them before his bar of judgment. That's what he means. Seeing that they were already dealt with, 
in the person of our substitute, our surety, our mediator, our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. Paul put it like this, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely also give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified. It's God that declared right. How did he declare you righteous? See, that's the question of the day. That's the question that's not being asked by men today, honestly. How can God declare me a sinner by birth, by nature, by practice, and by choice? How can he declare me righteous? I've said this. I'll continue to say it. If you are not and do not possess a righteousness in which God himself can find no flaw, you're going to hell. That puts us under his mercy. That's all all we can I, I, I don't have a righteousness, do you? I've preached 36 years. That ain't a righteousness. I pray, don't you? I try to give, don't you? I try to be with God's children, don't you? That ain't righteousness. It's not. It's God that justifies. Who's, who's the only one that can condemn you? It's Christ that died. He died for me. Bearing my sins in his body. Yea, well not only he was raised, risen again, risen again for what reason? For my justification. Who's even where? At the right hand of God. He's at the place of authority and power before God Almighty. What's he doing there? Making intercession. Doesn't mean he's praying for me nonstop. The fact that he's there and that he accomplished the work, that cries for me all the time. That I'm redeemed, that I'm reconciled, that I'm justified in Christ. And see, this teaches us that the glory of God principally shines forth in this. That God's reconciled by Christ's work and he forgives our sins. This is where true God-given faith rests. You think about this in light of what he said here. That he, he passeth by the sins of his people, the transgression of his people. Unless we're fully persuaded by God that He's reconciled to us, unless we're convinced by God that God delights to show mercy, we can never truly worship Him. You hear me? In other words, true reverence for God is born from an understanding, a God-given understanding of his forgiveness and his mercy. Every time the Lord brings me to him in prayer, I always think of one verse in particular. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark my iniquity, you write them down. Who can stand? But. Don't you like those words that are? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Nobody could ever explain that verse to me. The only ones that truly fear the Lord are those who are forgiven of God. The pagan doesn't doesn't truly fear the Lord because what's he still doing? He's still offering. Right? That's why under that old covenant there was a continual offering. Why? Because there was always a remembrance again every year of sin. Our sins are gone. 
are gone. I like what Mr. Calvin said on this particular part of this passage. He said, hence the fear of God and the true worship of God depend on a perception of his goodness and his favor. For we cannot from the heart worship God. And there can be no genuine religion in us except this persuasion be really and deeply rooted in our hearts that he is ever ready to forgive whenever we flee to him. Don't you feel at times, we're going to talk about that next, don't you feel at times like we've gone too far? Like you've done something? Sinned against your God too many times? Well, he says this, next, he retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. While it's true that God does and will chasten his people like we've been talking about in the Sunday Bible class hour for their transgressions through his providence, you know, he won't chasten them forever. He won't. In time for his glory and for our good, you know what? God changes the course of his providence toward us, showing us again his forgiving love, which is him turning his anger away from us. Listen to David again. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins, Salah, Paul's. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Isaiah said it this way, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou hast was angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. The question then is this, why does God do this? Why does he do it? Is it because of our improvement? Because of our repentance? Because of our confession? Absolutely not. There's no God, no doubt that God's children do seek to improve. They do confess. And they do repent. But none of these things or all of these things combined are the cause of God not retaining his anger toward us. What is because he delights in what? Mercy. Mercy. Our Lord Jesus Christ looked at those Jews one time and he said, Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am come not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. While God's mercy is abundant, His mercy is always exercised according to His sovereign will and pleasure. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. You think about it. Mercy is delightful to our God, and He takes pleasure in showing mercy to miserable creatures, to those who hope in God's mercy. David again, the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Look at verse 19. He will turn again and he will have compassion on us. Since God loves mercy, 
As we've already seen in verse 18, this verse literally tells us he'll return and he'll have mercy on us. At times, because of our sinfulness and our rebellion, it appears to us, doesn't it, as if God has turned from us and forsaken us. But yet the scriptures tell us what? He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. But see, these times where we feel that way, these are the believers, they, they trouble our souls, do they not? But the heart of faith, what does it do? Does it give up? Does it turn around and go back? No, what does it do? It hopes in the Lord. And glor gloriously, the Lord, what does he do? He returns and he shows us his marvelous grace and peace and mercy. You think about Peter. When, when he denied our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord looked into Peter's eyes. His heart was never broken until the Lord fixed his eyes on him and it broke his heart. And he went out, did he not? And wept. But yet our Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He returned. He returned. And he had mercy on him. He said, go tell the disciples and Peter that I go before them to Jerusalem. And see, what was true for Peter is true for every one of us. I tell you, if he told us, how many times, Lord, should we forgive my brother? Seven times? No, what did he say? Seven times 70. How does our Lord forgive us? Endlessly. Notice the next phrase. He will subdue our iniquities. What in the world does this mean? Well, we have an explanation here. Another explanation of the grace of pardon. Sin's the enemy of God, is it not? As well as our enemy. It's an, it's an, sin is an enemy that's too strong for us. Too powerful. Reigning over us by nature. We're under its power. We're under its influence. We're under its guilt. We're under its condemnation. Unable in and of ourselves to conquer it. But this phrase shows us who subdues. Which literally means... To tread down underfoot. Who treads down underfoot our iniquities? God does. Our blessed Lord has conquered sin. And he's made an end of it. And he took it away. And like a conquering king over a beaten enemy. Our Lord Jesus Christ put his feet on sin's neck. And trampled it underfoot. And Christ did it in such a way, listen, it can never, ever rise in condemnation of one of his beloved. He told us through his apostle Paul, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law. What are we under? Thank God we're under grace. But then there's one last phrase. Look at this last phrase. Thou wilt cast all their sins. Into the depth of the sea. Years ago. I can't remember exactly when. I, I ran across a YouTube video. That was dealing with the, the depths of the sea. And I'll never forget when I watched that thing. I, I'd heard. I actually heard of this thing. The Challenger Deep. Because of Hunt for Red October. That movie that was out with Sean Connery years ago. About that. That trench, I don't forgot what that trench is called out there in the ocean. It's the deepest part of the ocean. And the deepest part of the deepest part is a place called Challenger Deep. 
And I didn't know that till I saw this, this video. The place is called the Challenger Deep is 35,856 feet deep. 35,856 feet deep. Mount Everest is 29,029 feet. It's growing the micrometers every year, but 29,029 feet. If you took the Mount Everest and sunk it into Challenger Deep, you know what? You'd have a mile of water. We think about the highest point on earth. We never think about the lowest point on earth. You'd have a mile of water over it. And the scriptures tell us here, thou wilt cast all their sins. And that, that word, thou, there's one, one phrase, thou wilt cast. You know what it means? It means to hurl. So what has God done? God's hurled all his people's sins, where? Into the depths. That's what it says, the depths. And that word depth means the deep sea. Who created Challenger Deep? Who knows the depth of Challenger Deep? And he says that he, the omniscient God, the ever-loving God, the merciful God, he cast them into the deepest part of the sea, which means what? They can't be found. And they'll never be seen again. You remember God's omniscient means what? His eyes are everywhere seeing all things. Yet he will not offend our sins. Why? Because he's satisfied. Satisfied where? He satisfied himself. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself. How did he satisfy himself? In the blood of his dear son. Christ bore our sins away effectively and eternally. But I think there's something that we need to take in mind. Because these Jews that were reading this. This has some express meaning to them. You know what the illusion is here? To these Jews? The illusion here is to the Egyptians. When they were chasing the children of Israel. Out to the Red Sea. And remember God parted. Remember they, they, were, they were out there. Wouldn't it have been better for us to have been back in Egypt. Building bricks without straw. Than for you to bring us out here in, us, in this desert. And us die at this sea. And Moses said you stand still. And you behold our God. And the Lord parted the water in front of them. That's an amazing thing. I, the, the, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston does not do that any justice. God parted that water across that Red Sea. That Red Sea is a picture of what? It's redemption through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. God parts the sea and he makes it as it were dry ground. And they're afraid. And they would go down. And they went down through there and they came out on the other side. And the Egyptians come to that same sea, that same message of redemption. And they think, we'll go. And they go down into the Red Sea, and what happens? When they get down to the deepest part, God clothed, the same sea that was their redemption was these Egyptians' annihilation. Our message, this gospel message that we preach, it is a saber of life unto life, and it is a saber of death unto death. And like Paul said, who is sufficient for these? Who can preach this, this message? You think about it, when somebody hears this message and rejects this message, this same message that is life to the children of God was it to them.
Same thing could be said to them that was said to Judas Iscariot. It had been better that you'd never been born. So what was he telling them? He was telling them, just like you'll never see Egyptians again, what will we never see again? You'll never see your sins again. There's not going to be some big movie screen out there that we're going to stand before. Christ dealt with our iniquities, all of them. They're all pardoned. They're all covered. They're all blotted out. And not one sin remains charged to one of God's elect, seeing they were all charged to Christ. I love this verse. I, even I, have blotted out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Let me close with this. Years ago, Henry made a statement, always stuck with me, concerning remembering our sins, particularly as it relates to this verse. I remember the first time I heard him say it, I was listening to him preach on this passage. He said, God threw our sins over his shoulder into the depths of the sea, and he put up a sign that says, no fishing. <laughs> God, listen, God's no longer fishing for our sins. He's not going to bring them back up. So the question then is this. Why do we continually go dredging up what God has dealt with in the person, his dear son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Let us, by God-given faith, believe God's promise. Trust and he's reconciled to us in the person, his son, and as reconciled sons and daughters of the true and living God, we should live accordingly out of grace and gratitude to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. I pray the Lord bless that message to your heart, mind, and understanding. Remember to turn your clocks forward next Saturday night and be with us next Sunday morning at 1030 for this special time of worship. But if you would dismiss us, please, sir.